The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Good evening and namaste to all of you. Tonight we are having a special edition of our satsang because at the same time it intends to be a presentation of the workshop and retreat of Kashmiri Shaivism. The subject in itself can very easily be the the theme of one of our satsangs and that's what we do but the timing for which it comes real now is that tomorrow there is the starting of what we call Kashmir Shaivism intro. The very <coughs> name Kashmiri Shaivism is a mystery, it's a very twisted name for most people like Kashmiri is something which apparently comes from Kashmir but uh, there are not uh, quite a lot of things happening in Kashmir in the last 30 years except ethnic violence and cleansing and a lot of pain and um, for many people if you ask them something about Kashmir they don't identify it with things from yoga given the fact that Kashmir, even at the time when the ethnic cleansing had not happened, Kashmir was about 95% a Muslim part of India. And therefore, in such environment, you don't talk much about yoga. So what has anything got to do with agama, with spiritual practice, that tantric people yogis like those from Agama they are actually doing a teaching which is called Kashmiri Shaivism. Again people if they think about Kashmir they would some people would remember that 25 years ago the travel agencies had as motto Kashmir the most beautiful area the most beautiful part of the world. This is what was used in tourist advertising in those days because indeed Kashmir is an area of a ravishing natural beauty in which people have managed to create hell and otherwise people are thinking about uh, Kashmirian silk carpets people are thinking about Kashmiri pulau, rice with almonds and some other things but like Kashmiri when you say Kashmiri it doesn't sound like much in terms of yoga itself or spirituality and then when you say Kashmiri Shaivism or Shivaism because both can be used they're just twists of one and the same words that sounds even a little bit weird because Shaivism or Shivaism sounds like we're talking about something very very Hindu Shivaism, Shaivism seems to be a branch of Hinduism of some sort because it starts from the root Shiva and therefore it involves it seems to involve worship of some aspect of God and that is why 
for many people from the very beginning this title is very exclusive it's like Kashmiri Shaivism is a title which addresses a very peculiar niche in spirituality a very narrow thing it's a very specialized thing and that is why it actually needs to be explained tomorrow when I'm going to do the workshop itself I'm going to spend much longer time because this rabbit hole is so much deeper until that time in a short presentation like I'm doing tonight I can only leave it to that Kashmiri Shaivism obviously refers to a spiritual practice to a discipline if you want to a form of yoga as peculiar as they may sound which not in the last 30 years but maybe in the last a thousand years or so has emerged from Kashmir the question is why bother like in many people studying Chinese stuff like Tai Chi or others they speak about the Taoist style, the Shaolin style, the Northern style, the Southern style the Yang style, the Yin style, the this, the that and therefore if you would assume for a second that in yoga it's pretty much the same and the spiritual practice in India is different from North of India to South of India and from East of India to West of India then this Kashmiri Shaivism could be like a peculiar style of the yogic and tantric spiritual practice somehow connected to Kashmir or to the history of Kashmir but still it doesn't show us where it goes what it really is Kashmiri Shaivism in fact is one of the great pillars of the Agama tradition the very name Agama which represents a tradition a tradition of scriptures of texts traditional texts is actually mostly used in Kashmir and in Kashmiri Shaivism in Kashmiri Shaivism you would say that all these fundamental texts they are called Agamas and therefore the very fact that we here in Agama Yoga we say well we are going we are teaching according to the Agamic tradition what is this Agamic tradition this Agamic tradition you can see it mostly in the Kashmirian forms of Tantra in the Kashmirian forms of yoga in the Kashmirian forms of spirituality and that is why remember that Kashmiri Shaivism is more than just a, a peculiar tradition like we in Agama we picked up some three four five ten interesting traditions or things from India it's much much more than that the very name of the school and as you are going to see a bit later tonight not coincidentally the very name of this school is actually inspired a lot from this Kashmirian tradition so we can say from the very beginning that Kashmiri Shaivism as whatever form of yoga that may be is very basic in Agama it is one of our pillars 
As I say sometimes in the lecture about what is Agama Yoga, and that lecture is uploaded on our site so you can listen to it anytime. In the Agama style of yoga, there are a few fundamental pillars. And one of them, which everybody sees quite easily, is our very special type of Hatha Yoga, Laya Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, our way of working with the body, with the energy, with the chakras, with the concentration of the mind, with resonance with different energies, with resonance at the level of the five bodies, and all these things which you learn pretty early in the game, all these things are definitely one of the pillars in Agama. Many people, if they stay in Agama for a level or two or three, they never really get to see beyond this. They think that's what we do in Agama. Those who get beyond this, they start seeing something of the Tantric tradition, especially the Tantric tradition in its shamanic form, like the worship of the Mahavidyas, the feminine cosmic powers, the goddesses, and related to that, not completely, but related to that, also the emergence or the presence of the sexual practices of Tantra, which are, for some people, making Agama so very controversial. And this will be the second pillar. If you go beyond learning the Hatha Yoga and things, then there is the Tantric tradition, which is a tradition mostly called the Kaula tradition of India. That would be the second pillar, Again, very, very rare. But the first one is highly unusual. You won't find many places on the face of this earth where you can study that. With the second one, it's a rare plus a rare. It's two rare things brought together, and that makes it super rare. And then it goes to a third pillar, and the third pillar would be exactly Kashmiri Shaivism, which is the highest metaphysical tradition, which is the most intense of the spiritual places. For example, if you go into the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which is the root text of what is called by scholars today classical yoga, in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, the highest spiritual practices mentioned are the mantra Aum without any indications exactly what it is. We are simply told that the mantra Aum is the highest sonorous symbol of the divinity. It doesn't really say how to use it. What do you do with it? And then you are having a lot of vague representations about concentration, meditation, and samadhi. That seems to be like you want to practice the highest of the highest of classical yoga, well, do concentration, meditation, and contemplation. Think about the mantra Aum in some very fuzzy, non-specified way. Can you find in the Yoga Sutra one technique, one method which is higher than what I just said? No, not really. If you look in other traditions, like if you look in the Hatha Yoga tradition, let's take Hatha Yoga tradition, then you can work on the crown chakra. For example, you can do the headstand. 
and you can do pranayama, focusing on the crown chakra, bringing the energy at the level of the crown chakra, and you can do sublimation of energy. And is there anything higher that you can do? Not really. That is why what I'm trying to point at here is the fact that every tradition has got its supreme techniques. Like these are the highest of the highest. This is the creme de la creme. You, when you go there, you have reached the maximum technology. Well, in Agama, not in the Kundalini part and not in the other parts, as I said, in classical yoga, but in Agama, if you want to look at something which would be called creme de la creme, you don't need to go further than Kashmiri Shaivas, which simply says, in India, different forms of yoga, different forms of spirituality, they have focused on different strengths, which depends very much from the teacher who taught that. For example, the Buddhist tradition, which originally comes from Gautama Buddha, which is manifested mostly under the form of Theravada Buddhism or Hinayana Buddhism, which is very well illustrated in the Thai typical Buddhism, is not a tradition which contains any reference to any form of healing. There is no healing in Buddhism. I have known monks in the Theravada tradition who fell very ill and they were sent to a hospital just like everybody else. Like in the Thai monasteries, they don't practice healing arts. Ah, that sometimes there can be a monk who before becoming a monk knew some Thai massage or knew some herbal medicine or knew some, but that's not because they are Buddhist monks. It has nothing to do with the education as a Buddhist monk. It has to do with their previous background. In itself, the tradition, the Theravada tradition, never intended to provide any healing capability. When you compare that with Hatha Yoga, you see immediately the difference. Because in Hatha Yoga, we say you can sublime your sexual energy, you can get out of Svadhisthana, you can activate your higher chakras, you can obtain more willpower, you can develop your, your crown chakra or your third eye, and you can also do lots of healing things and lots of other things, like you can improve your capability to play chess, if you love chess playing, while, for example, in other spiritual traditions, you do not find these things at all. That's why, please remember that the spiritual traditions very often have many collaterals, and some of those collaterals are desirable, and some of those collaterals might not be as desirable as that. Why am I saying this? Because each part of each aspect of the tradition has its strengths. For example, if you focus on the Theravada Buddhist tradition, it's a tradition which is extremely dry. It doesn't speak about siddhis, like paranormal powers of the mind, although there is a folklore about monks who got endowed with cities through tens of years of meditation, but still it does not go 
the tradition itself does not preach any Buddhist exercise, any breathing, vipassana, anapana, something which gives you the ability to fly in mid-air or to channel energy through your arms and hands or anything like this. And that's why you can see that this is a tradition which doesn't focus on healing, doesn't focus on chess playing, doesn't focus on improving your performance in bed in terms of sex. It doesn't focus on paranormal abilities. It focuses on developing a higher degree of awareness, consciousness, and it is focused pretty much uniquely on nirvana. Unlike Hatha Yoga, which can give a lot of other collateral effects, and some of those collateral effects are today even lamented by some of the experts in yoga, because if Hatha Yoga couldn't have been prostituted as fitness and gymnastics, then we wouldn't have had this confusion, this terrible confusion, in which yoga is mixed up for being some fitness or some gymnastics. So some people say it would have been better if you couldn't heal anything with yoga, if you couldn't lose weight by doing yoga, if you couldn't this and couldn't that, because then people wouldn't have hijacked it, people wouldn't have misused it, people wouldn't have turned it into something else. In the same way, other and other side lateral collaterals exist in other traditions. To make the long story short, Agama, which is a mixture of three, four such powerful influences in spirituality, as I just mentioned, it contains at its highest part the extract, the essence of Kashmiri Shaivism. And that is for a very simple reason. Kashmiri Shaivism, for example, does not have any healing tradition into it. You want healing? You do pranayama, you do shirshasana, you do udhyana bandha. That's where healing is coming from. So, but there is a part of yoga that we call Kashmiri Shaivism, which is excellent when it comes to the highest spiritual accomplishments. Does it say that Hatha Yoga is not excellent? Perhaps if we are to be really, really demanding, we could say that, that Hatha Yoga, headstand pranayama, is not a, the ultimate spiritual method. Can it work on Sahasrara? Yes, it can work on Sahasrara. Can it give higher levels of consciousness? Yes. Is it the best method for activating your Sahasrara? No. The headstand and Hatha Yoga alone is not glorified because of that. That's not where its strong point is, although it can do a lot, and as a secondary practice, as an aid to practice, as an auxiliary practice, as a sidekick practice, it's fantastic. You stand on your head for 15 minutes, and then you sit down and do a meditation on the crown chakra. Your meditation on the crown chakra will work, three times better than it ever did. So it's an excellent sidekick. It's an excellent warm-up. It's an excellent support. But not only by itself. 
That's why, please remember that in Agama, we have things which are very down to earth and which are healing and which are interfering with your daily life, chess playing or sexual activity or whatever is there in your daily life which is relevant and where you may want some help from yoga. And also, let's not forget that we are told from the very beginning that in Agama we are also pure breed spiritual seekers. In Agama we never forgot that the origin of yoga is that yoga were, was created by some men and women who were in search of the wisdom. Even Hatha Yoga, when the, the Greek philosophers who were accompanying Alexander the Great reached all the way to India and they discovered inevitably the first yogis in India, they gave them a very inspired name in those days. They called them, we went to India and we found a very strange kind of philosophers that we should call gymnosophists, from philosophists and from gymnastics. Gymnastic philosophists, people who try to become philosophical by standing on their heads, by doing something gymnastic. Philosophy by gymnastics. Therefore, yoga was, even when it was physical, it has never been until a century ago, even less than a century ago, until the 60s actually, 50s, 60s, yoga has never been a fitness, a business, an adventure like that. Yoga has been a spiritual discipline. And that's why, because here in Agama, we are of spiritual orientation, and at least the core teachers in this school, the advanced teachers in this school, they are inevitably spiritual seekers, and we feel very inclined to support those of you who are also spiritual seekers and who want to discover the same thing. That's inevitably, as I said, the core, the heart of Agama. Therefore, it would be realistic to think that we always looked into what works spiritually best. Like, is it enough that we do headstands and pranayamas? No, it is actually not enough. You can do better than that. But do you want to give up the pranayama and the headstand? No, because it does a lot of good in a lot of other places. And that's why in Agama, we didn't throw the baby with the water in the tub, like because there are other spiritual teachings in India which may go higher, steeper, then we should give up the Hatha Yoga. No, we keep the Hatha Yoga as the first stages of practice, and it can help you even after 20 years of yoga, even after 30 years of yoga, even if you have reached states of Samadhi, you can still use Paschimottanasana or something like that for various purposes because even if you are a person that has reached the state of Samadhi, you can still get pain in your lower back. You can still eat some crap and suffer from indigestion or digestive problems. Or like Ramana Maharishi and Ramakrishna 
you can even get to suffer from a cancer, and therefore there is no need to throw the baby, because the baby of Hatha Yoga is very handy, it's very useful wherever you are in yoga, even if you have reached Samadhi, it doesn't mean you cannot turn back to Hatha Yoga and use it, unless you are prone of dying of cancer, and then you don't do it. But then, what I'm trying to say here is that we in Agama, we are the result of a spiritual quest which did not stop with Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, but it went into Laya Yoga, Raja Yoga, Classical Yoga, the Tantric forms of Yoga, and everything which was demonstrated to work. To work. Not philosophy, but practical. We are practical yogis. Well, perhaps now it is time to come round about after all this and to tell you the conclusion. Kashmiri Shaivism has the reputation, and in my personal opinion, it's not a reputation. It is the way things are. It is up to you to ascertain that for yourselves, because we never ask you to believe us blindly. We simply put a statement in front of you, and we simply say, analyze it, verify it. This is a challenge. It's like the glove is down there. Pick up the glove and verify this challenge. So the challenge which I'm setting in front of you is this. There is nothing higher in the Indian tradition, and that's a huge statement because the Indian tradition has given several widespread religions to the world, plus a lots of forms of practical spirituality and practical terminology, technology, I'm sorry. And that's why my statement can sound very exaggerated, and I make this statement standing in front of you as a teacher with a certain reputation and as a person that has been involved in yoga for definitely more than 30 years. And I'm simply saying there is nothing in the yoga, in the Indian yogic or even in the Tibetan yogic tradition which is higher than Kashmiri Shaivism. Kashmiri Shaivism seems at this point to be the ultimate spiritual product. It's like the Rolls Royce among cars or something like this or whatever. Maybe there are cars more expensive than Rolls Royces, but I'm not an expert in cars. Then those of you who are punctilious about that, then replace Rolls Royce with Bentley or whatever. You know it to be very... The Kashmiri Shaivism is in spirituality what Rolls Royce is in cars. It's the absolute top notch. There is nothing beyond that. That's a very large statement because in spirituality, people always like to brag that their spirituality is better than any other spirituality. And because spirituality is so vague in some way, like with Hatha Yoga, things can be measured in a laboratory, but with meditation and spirituality, it's different. Therefore, this statement is very, very difficult to verify in fact. Because many people will say, well, you know, the Hare Krishna people say that worshipping Krishna is the better. 
thing and it even is written, they can quote something from Bhagavad Gita to that effect. So now why are you contradicting Bhagavad Gita? Other people would say Vedantin. People would say that Advaita Vedanta is the pearl of Indian spirituality, the most abstract, the most vertical, the most this and that. Some people would say that, oh no, the self-revelation of Ramana Maharishi, the Atma Vichara, the self-inquiry, there cannot be anything more pure and more vertical than that. Tibetan people will say, well, what about Anuttara Yoga Tantra, the highest text of Tibetan Buddhism or something? What about uh, Dzogchen or Mahamudra or other things which are supposed to be really, really high? People coming from other traditions, they would say, well, isn't praying to Jesus Christ the highest thing because Jesus is God? People sympathizing with Zen Buddhism would say, well, isn't Zen the ultimate simplified view on the vision of the things and of the world? Like we can always, there are at least 50 spiritual lineages and religions out there which compete with each other. And still, I tell you from my own experience and the experience which I've seen on others, as well as as much metaphysics and philosophy I could pick up along my life, still the statement remains. There is nothing in India or Tibet or any other spirituality that I got to see in front of my eyes, there is nothing as great as Kashmiri Shaivism. Many, many people when they have studied it practically, which is very difficult, then they find out that I was right. You will have people in the school among the advanced pupils who would be able, if you would ask them, they would say, yeah, I did a few years of this and now I can say what Swami says. There is nothing higher. Therefore, Kashmiri Shaivism is a sort of a crown on the work. If you will study with Agama, for a longer time, more than one level or two levels or three levels, then one day you will reach to the teachings of Kashmiri Shaivas, which are the crown on what we teach here. And you are going to see with your own eyes that there is nothing higher. The technology, the teachings of Kashmiri Shaivas are unsurpassed. That's why for us Kashmiri Shaivism is very important and there are many of us who would give up Hatha Yoga, but they would not give up the Kashmiri Shaivism. Like, if you choose something, Kashmiri Shaivism represents the top part of the teachings of Agama. The only problem is that many people are hasty, and when they hear such statement, they say, so why do we bother learning about Pranayama? and not go quickly to Kashmiri Shaivism. That's because Kashmiri Shaivism is exactly like some... There was a huge musical concert planned by Jean-Michel Jarre around the Great Pyramid of Egypt, of Cheops, in the year 2000. And part of this gigantic show of light and so on was to put a top on the pyramid because the Great Pyramid is decapitated. It's lacking the very top. So they had prepared a golden tip to just put it on top of that. 
The problem is that that top couldn't stand on sand. It had to be put on the top of the pyramid. The same story is with Kashmiri Shaivism. Kashmiri Shaivism, while it was discovered as an independent system of practice, it was invented by some very peculiar people living in Kashmir about 12 centuries ago. And these people were already extremely spiritual, living in very, very peculiar conditions. And they were already Hindu, spiritualized people like vegetarian and all that. And because of all that, for these people, spirituality came a little bit easier. Also, please do not forget that many of these yoga traditions were originally created by people who didn't have newspapers, books, media of any kind, except some handwritten books. There were people who didn't have radio, any form of serious theater, circus, or entertainment. There was no cinema. There was no internet. There was no electricity. There was nothing. If you would go in a village somewhere on the face of this earth where the conditions would be comparable with Kashmir in the 8th century AD, probably most of you would get the eebie-jeebies and start howling like wolves to the moon after a week. Like life would be the most boring, depressive, unbearable thing that you have ever seen. Many people, when they go in such environment, they don't manage to find out how can people stay sane and happy because people seem to lack any form of titillation, any form of excitation whatsoever, and yet they can be perfectly happy and perfectly centered. That simply says, when you are just sitting and looking at some flock of sheep grazing on the opposite hill, and you sit with your chin on a long stick like this, for about eight hours every day, looking into the horizon, then in the moment when you start doing some meditations from yoga, they will have a different impact on your brain, because your brain is not too scattered. Your brain is not distracted. There is not much in your mind. Your mind doesn't have much samskaras. It's very simple. Not to mention the fact that you haven't been rendered semi-autistic by anti-polio and anti-TBC vaccination when you are one year old, and you didn't get a ton of antibiotics every time you got 37 degree temperature, you got shot with penicillin and then more and more and more advanced antibiotics because penicillin, you became unresponsive to it. So what I'm trying to say is that nowadays, the human being is very, very damaged compared to what people were at the time of Kashmirians in the 8th century. And that's why the people who invented these things, they had a slightly different brain. They definitely had a slightly different temperament. They had a very, very different background. And because of this, the problem, as I said from the beginning, is this. Kashmiri Shaivism is not really a yoga form for beginners. Kashmiri Shaivism is elite yoga. Kashmiri Shaivism is top-notch yoga. 
It doesn't contain almost anything physical, like it's not based on headstands and stuff like this, although it can be mixed with the practice of the headstand, as you will see, but it's not consisting of that. And therefore, Kashmiri Shaivism, when you teach it to beginners, especially when you teach it to absolute beginners, it's like a baseball bat over the middle of your head. You know, it's like it knocks you out and then you say, what the heck is this? How does one really do this? It's, it becomes so abstract that for many people it's impossible. That's why one thing is for sure. Kashmiri Shaivism is not kindergarten yoga. And that's why in Agama, as much as we value the Kashmiri Shaivism, and really I as a spiritual teacher, there is a part of me which is dying to share Kashmiri Shaivism with you. I would really, really love to show you Kashmiri Shaivism. Because Kashmiri Shaivism is the pearl of the whole thing. And you won't find, guaranteed, it's a bet, I'm betting you, you won't find anything better, higher, more top-notch than Kashmiri Shaivism. But unfortunately, if it comes too early in the game, it, it, you'll shoot a blank. Like, it, it will scare you. It will turn you off. It will be like, uh, yeah, I have been to KS intro with Swami, but, uh, you know, he lost me by, by the middle of it. By the third day, he lost me somewhere. There were too many Sanskrit words. There was too much philosophy. There were such strange metaphysical concepts that my mind started glitching completely. I, I couldn't follow it. That's why here is uh, our dilemma as teachers. We cannot accelerate your personal progress beyond a certain speed. And even there, it depends very much on how much personal practice you do at home. It's all about your practice, ultimately, because you are coming to the yoga hall two times per week, three times per week, four times per week, whatever it is, and that cannot supplement 100% your personal effort and your own spiritual practice. And that is why we actually, for a number of years in Agama, also when I was teaching in India and other places, I never really talked about Kashmiri Shaivism because talking about Kashmiri Shaivism was like teasing people, like I know something which is called Kashmiri Shaivism and actually I'm going to miss you halfway in the process, through the process, so I'm not going to teach you yet Kashmiri Shaivism. And that would have been a teaser. So actually I practiced the wiser policy of not even talking about it and only when people have finished the Hatha Yoga and Pranayama and everything, and people got to the Kundalini part, and then they got to know that later we are going to look into Kashmiri Shaivism. But that was a sort of a far, far promise of something. The carrot was hanging too far ahead, and people couldn't even see that carrot. And that's why... It was necessary to let people know because people would ask, what is Agama all about? Where is Agama going? 
what is the highest purpose of your teachings in Agama? What is the, really the purpose here? Where are you taking us? What sorts of teachings are there and what sorts of results are there? And the answer would be, well, Kashmiri Shaivism. That's where you go. You go into the highest forms of yoga. And we are very, very grateful to, the, this, to this great universe that we have been given such an amazing thing in our stewardship, that we are the guardians of such a rare thing. Agama Yoga is the guardian of some incredible stuff. Yoga with chakras and energies, like Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, the Tantric forms of yoga, and Kashmiri Shaivism. Each one of these is considered to be a gem, a jewel. And we do at least and more than all three of them, and we do them thoroughly, we do them well. And that's why this is a big thing in Agama Yoga, that we have this treasure of Kashmiri Shaivism, and the question was how to share it. How to share it. So I have searched and searched ways, because my old way, when I was living in the West, my old way was to have simply people wait. Like finish your Hatha Yoga, finish your subtle bodies, finish your Kundalini practices, and then when you are advanced enough, then you can go, I can show you, I can open the door to Kashmiri Shaivism. And of course, then it will work. Like if, if I teach you Kashmiri Shaivism after you've done four years of yoga or five years of yoga or six years of yoga, Agama style, then it works. For example, Kashmiri Shaivism does not care at all and takes it for granted that you can feel energy moving through your body and through your chakras. It describes exercises where your consciousness is associated with letters of the Sanskrit alphabet or mantras or things in different parts of your body and you are just pronouncing vowels of Sanskrit like a, a, e, e, u, u and you feel the energy moving through your chakras at the same time. Well, people who come to the first level of Agama Yoga, they can't feel their chakras. They can't feel their energy. And for some people it takes more than a month. There are people who take two, three, four, and even more, very seldom, it's true, even more than that to really start feeling energy moving through their system. So when I take such a person and dump them into Kashmiri Shaivism, I lose them because they can't do basic exercises in Kashmiri Shaivism, which Abhinava Gupta and the other great gurus of Kashmiri Shaivism, they take for granted. Like if you can't even feel energy through your body, it's like for them you are lower than kindergarten. You are a total rookie and they shrug their shoulders and they say we've never had a sort of preliminary thing for Kashmiri Shaivism. There isn't. So I don't know, learn it from another teacher, do whatever. When you come to us, we want to teach you directly this, 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 that. No, we have many people who come to our yoga they can't do 15 minutes of relaxation. Our beginner level teachers can tell you. There are people who are so neurotic and so fucked up that they cannot sit quietly for 15 minutes of relaxation. 
Well, if you cannot do 15 minutes of relaxation because you need therapy, because you are deeply neurotic, then what Kashmiri Shaivism are we talking about? You know, like Kashmiri Shaivism is like Chomolungma, it's like Mount Everest. It's somewhere far, far up there, <clears throat> but it's not something which most beginners can practice. So that's why we still had this dilemma. I tried different formulas because my pupils in those days were asking for it. And I tried to give them an appetizer. So I created a workshop some 11, 12 years ago, which was called Kashmiri Shaivism 1, KS1, and kind of a sort of first step in Kashmiri Shaivism. And then those people wanted more, and the next year I made a KS2, and the next year I made a KS3, and then when I drew the line and I saw what came out of those people, I was disappointed because I started losing them. They started dropping dead along the path. And therefore, I realized this was still not the way. Today, at this point, we finally managed to create a sort of a viable compromise. And that is, we created a workshop, a five-day workshop. A couple of years ago, this workshop got a retreat immediately after it. And you'll understand why. I'll try to explain that as well. And we, call, we called this new format, we called it KS Intro, Introduction to Kashmiri Shaivism. No, we cannot teach you 50, even 50% or some not even close of 50% of the Kashmiri Shaivism in five days. We can just show you the tip of the iceberg. We can just show you the little bit which is there. Even that one is flabbergasting. And um, some of you, I know it for a fact, some of you who will participate in this workshop will fall in love with it and will be like frantic about it 10 days from now. That's why people have study groups where they meet every week and they read texts of KS and they talk and they debate and they do philosophical analysis because it's like a drug. It's just because you read it and talk about it and you get into altered states of consciousness. So potent it is, so high it is. But at the same time, some people will not really be able to follow. And some people will shake their head and say, well, if I do yoga another one year or two years or more, then maybe I'll be up to this one. That's why um, we did not manage to find a perfect version, a perfect alternative. We found the best which we could find until now. And uh, this is going to be a sort of an appetizer. We are going to teach you whatever we can teach you in the beginning. It's going to be very steep. It's going to be so steep that in the first day we won't be able to do any single exemplification. Like there will be only teaching. In the second day there will be one very shocking exemplification. And only somewhere in the third day and fourth day, it will be possible to timidly start giving some examples and some exemplifications. 
And that's why we actually had the retreat afterwards, because it takes about five days to load people up with the concepts. There is a total different jargon. There's lots of Sanskrit. There's lots of scary stuff. And finally, in the fifth day, you feel like, oh my God, now I could really hit the nail on its head, but the workshop is over. And that's why many people said, Swami, if now we would sit and practice, we feel we would fly. And that's why we said, okay, let's do that. So we created a workshop based on those techniques in which you, for five days, you just digest what you have learned in the first five days, which means you practice it, you put it into practice, and it's wonderful, it gives us wonderful feedback, because five days, even five days, is not necess- it's not enough. In five days, we are just getting you up to speed. It's like we put you on orbit, you know, you get trajectory speed, and you can orbit, you know, you get the necessary velocity, but then the meat is yet to come. And again, this is KS intro. The only place here in Agama where we teach Kashmiri Shaivism full on, beyond this, you will find bits and pieces of it in the Kundalini program, but most of it in what we call here in Agama the advanced teachings. In Agama we have about four stages, four large groups of the teachings, levels 1 to 14, which are most of the Hatha Yoga, Pranayama, Asanas, and the basics. The next levels, which stretch from 15 to 25 or so, which are the levels called Kundalini Yoga. Then after that, there comes a period called the Tapas, the personal Tapas, where people do Tapas of their own for obtaining some results. And then finally there comes the fourth stage of practice, if you resist until then, and that is called advanced teachings. And in advanced teachings, more than 70% of what we do, probably 80% or even more, is actually Kashmiri Shaivist. That's why I say, if you get to the highest levels of Agama, you are going to eat Kashmiri Shaivism with a big spoon, and you are going to be into it a lot. And then you are going to understand it and be able to do it, and it's going to work for you amazingly. Until that time, we can give you an appetizer, or several appetizers, under the form of KS intro, and the retreats which derive from it. That's the, it's a sort of a compromise solution, because we did not find any other way to teach Kashmiri Shaivism earlier. I did some attempts, and they didn't quite work well, and that's why, until today, the feedback which we have allows us to do that. Which means, uh, those of you who will join the Kashmiri Shaivism, you will be into yoga all the way above your head. Like it's going to be a level of practice and a level of theory and a level of spirituality which is really, really high. I'm again, I'm not saying that you cannot catch it because it is trimmed, it's adapted in such a way that you can catch most of it and people love it. We know 
this part of the feedback, and still it will be only the beginning of this adventure. Kashmiri Shaivism is a very, very spiritual teaching. It has no relevance for fitness, gymnastics. It doesn't even allow you to obtain paranormal states of consciousness like telepathy or clairvoyance of the auras or things like this. It's a part of yoga which does not concern any of the others. It concerns strictly the spiritual part of the human being. And we can say that it modifies very much the daily life. It's a yoga which can be applied successfully in the daily life. Because these people thought that all life has to be a yoga. And you have to demonstrate your yoga in your life. But again, it was not about Hatha Yoga and it was not about paranormal things. Kashmiri Shaivism is a form of yoga which was not made for monks. So it is not a hyper-ascetic form of yoga. Of course, it requires the observance of yama and niyama. And especially when I say ascetic, most people think about the sexual asceticism. Of course, Kashmiri Shaivism will not work in case you are not practicing brahmacharya. But of course, you know that brahmacharya can be practiced in two very different ways. And that's why Kashmiri Shaivism does not steer away too much from the basic principles of spirituality, but it is a form of yoga which was conceived for householders. That means for people living in a house, not in a cave or in a hermitage, which doesn't mean that you are not allowed from time to time to go and spend time in a hermitage and just do some intensive practice. And Kashmiri Shaivism is not really a religious form, as you are going to see. Kashmiri Shaivism is for men and for women. We have some great names of women, out of which the most famous is Laleshwari, Lal Didi, one of the greatest poetesses of India and the greatest poetess of Kashmir, who was a Kashmiri Shaivistic woman. Therefore, we have brilliant examples of men as well as of women who have been great into this. Kashmiri Shaivism is a very philosophical and intellectual approach. So those of you who don't like to use their mind, you will have to approach only the very, very simplified technology of Kashmiri Shaivism, sort of a Zen-like simplification, because otherwise if you want to do <coughs> Kashmiri Shaivism to the bottom, to the hilt, then Kashmiri Shaivism is a very, very intellectual, mental, it uses lots of Ajna Chakra, and it uses lots of metaphysics and philosophy. It's very perfect, very powerful from this standpoint. We had people to whom we recommended Kashmiri Shaivism indirectly through this, and then they went and studied it. We had people who were making a PhD in philosophy and the likes of them, and then they wrote emails where they said this is the ultimate philosophy. Like even people at the PhD level in the Western universities, when they read Kashmiri Shaivism, just nobody told them that there is something called Kashmiri Shaivism, or if they heard, they heard collaterally, like, oh, there, is, there are so many things in India, one of them is Kashmiri Shaivism. No. 
<coughs> the proper recommendation is Kashmiri Shaivism is the top notch, is the highest of the highest, is the best of the best, and people who challenge that statement, they send confirmation. Great students in Vedanta like Jayadeva Singh and others, in the moment when they discovered Swami Lakshmanju, the last living teacher of Kashmiri Shaivism in the 1980s and so on, and they studied it, they said exactly the same. They dropped everything else from the Indian philosophy, and they said, I didn't even know that in India we had a thing like this. Like people who were authors, professors in universities, when they encountered Kashmiri Shaivism, they were in awe, and you will be in awe if you will study it, because you've never seen anything like Kashmiri Shaivism. It's, it's pure aesthetical pleasure. It's pure metaphysical and intellectual pleasure. It's pure perfection and pure delight from those standpoints. And um, you can spend a lifetime into it. And one of the most thrilling things about it, which I'll speak about tomorrow as well, is that you will never find a single flaw in it. Like in every philosophy, you can take the philosophy of Kant or Hegel or <coughs> somebody and find lots of arguable things. Kashmiri Shaivism is not like that. Kashmiri Shaivism is the only word which applies to it, even philosophically and intellectually, is perfect. It's just perfect. You haven't seen the likes of it. That's why um, we are blissed by the fact that we were given Kashmiri Shaivism because not, again, very, 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 very few schools of yoga have heard about it. I've spoken with many yogis in my life and they didn't have a clue that in India there existed a spiritual yogic teaching coming from Kashmir called Trika or Kashmiri Shaivism and that this was the cherry on top of the cake. Therefore, many people don't even know that it exists. The first thing is to hear about its existence. The second step is to find out a little bit of intro of what is it made of. And then you will be able to make up your own mind. Here in Agama, Kashmiri Shaivism, therefore, it meets the highest levels and it means a lot for us because it's the best spiritual practice. I'm not saying that you will not find other remarkable spiritual practices which we have picked up, like the Laya Yoga technique which we teach in the first level. The Laya Yoga technique is a miracle. It's one of the lost secrets of how to use mantras from India and Tibet. And the Laya Yoga technique alone and is worth a lot of praise. But Kashmiri Shaivism is still at least one step above others. If I will have time during the workshop, because it depends very much of how much I speak and questions and answers and a lot of things, then I'm going to even quote one of the great masters of Kashmiri Shaivism called Kshema Raja, who demonstrates in one of his basic texts, he demonstrates philosophically, irrefutably, like you just read it and if you say, well, if you think like he thinks, 
then there is no way of contradicting him as well, where he demonstrates that Kashmiri Shaivism is metaphysically the highest spiritual discipline from everything which existed in India until the century where he wrote that, which was like the 11th century. That's why what I'm saying here are, these are some very powerful statements which are made by very intelligent and very educated people who are not prone to any fanaticism, like very balanced, very healthy, psychologically. People, very spiritual, people who had analyzed the levels of spiritual life to an incredible extent. And again, I know I'm speaking into superlatives, but I don't even start there, I don't even dare to start right now to take an example from Kashmiri Shaivism and to tell you about this and that. For example, the, all the tantric yoga tells us that the universe is made out of five elements, which you all know, earth, fire, earth, water, fire, and all that. Tibetan yogis even extend and they say you can call the mind an element and then you have six elements and the mind is the sixth element. There is a very special psychology, a metaphysical psychological system in classical yoga called Sankhya and in Sankhya they define the reality by defining it in 24 plus 1, 25 elements, which is like really splitting the hair. Kashmiri Shaivism defines reality in 36 elements. Like there is no system of India or of Tibet which has gone to this degree of detail. And it's not just for the sake of making philosophy. They use these things and they show you practically when you meditate, when you concentrate your mind, when you do this and that, they show you exactly to which element these things belong. That's why... I just <coughs> intimated a little bit, it's, this rabbit hole is much, much deeper than that, that where some people see five elements or see element, six elements, Kashmiri Shaivists see 36 elements. How much more in detail you have to go, and is it really useful, or is it like uselessly splitting the hair philosophically? And this you are going to find out through direct experience, you are going to see how Kashmiri Shaivism works with these things. Um, I could speak about Kashmiri Shaivism non-stop the next week, and I guess that's what I'm going to do anyway, because Kashmiri Shaivism, since I discovered it first, it was my great love in terms of metaphysics. I have studied whatever was given to me, and because of having access to such levels of initiation, I was given pretty much everything. Like I've seen great teachings of Tibet and India. And every time, every time I had to turn back with great love into Kashmiri Shaivas. Because uh, it always, always takes the prize. I'm still open that somebody would be able to show me anything which matches or surpasses Kashmiri Shaivas, but that challenge has remained empty for the last 20-something years because there is really nothing in creation. Either you take the literature of Rumi or Christian mysticism or Buddhist 
mysticism or yoga, it still doesn't reach to that level. So um, I'm, I'm, I would simply say once in your lifetimes, maybe now, tomorrow, it's not the right time or energy for you, but once in your lifetimes, you should really study Kashmiri Shaivism. Also, given the fact that Kashmiri Shaivism, there are a few scholars and experts who got the point that it is so high, and they beat the drum on it. They said, hey, people, people, listen, there is this thing called Kashmiri Shaivism, and none of you has seen the equal of it. No, nobody has seen the likes of it. Pay attention, pay attention. And so many people in spirituality, they got to hear some ado, some clamor that there is something called Kashmiri Shaivism and you shouldn't miss it. But unfortunately, it's very esoteric and very few people have kept the teachings of it. And because of it, either Kashmiri Shaivism is relegated to some Sanskrit scholarship, like there are a few Sanskritologists who still are working hard to translate texts, not even half of the texts of Kashmiri Shaivism are translated in English or any other readable language for us Westerners. And, uh, or if they are not just scholarship, just dry scholarship, then unfortunately many of them have become new ageized. They are some hippie people took over some of them. Swami Muktananda went to America. There are some of his pupils, Chidvilasananda and Rudrananda and a few others. They propagated it, and they propagated really the tip of the iceberg. They propagated only very superficial stuff, which they said, this is Kashmiri Shaivism, and they wrote books, and actually compared to the Kashmirian tradition, those things which they published were like a veneer of Kashmiri Shaivism. They are not the real thing. So the problem is that Kashmiri Shaivism taught in its totality, Kashmiri Shaivism taught in its essential level, is extremely rare to find. And that's why in Agama, this is one of our great pearls. And again, I wish that you will get to see, at least the first thing which you can see from it, is the KS intro which is the result of our Agama experience of how to teach Kashmiri Shaivas to people who are not very old in yoga, to people who haven't been in yoga too much. The workshop and the retreat are independent, which means you can do the workshop and not do the retreat. They are not a block, they are not a package deal, but the retreat is put there simply because we know from experience that when people reach the fifth day and it's over, then people say, oh, right now we should really do this. And that's why many people change their mind. And in the sixth day, they love to go into the retreat because that's the fruition of five days of learning. That's when people can sit down and do and do and do and start obtaining results with it. I'm not going to say more. Again, I tried to just give you a, a presentation in a nutshell of where does this Kashmiri Shaivism come from and uh, launching the challenge that it is one of the best things and definitely the most elevated spiritually thing that we have to offer. And uh, as such, you shouldn't miss it. It's pure gold from a spiritual
standpoint. With this, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask questions. Usually in satsangs, we do not ask questions, but because this became also a presentation, and some of you may have a, a question or so, I want to give you the opportunity. So while Vasti here is quickly getting to the microphone thing, if you, are, if you want to address a question, please feel free to come forward, pick up the microphone. Testing, testing. Otherwise, that's where we stop for tonight. Question time once, question time twice. Good, that's enough, then see you in... You have would, a question. Okay. Would you recommend everyone to do the chakra tapas always before going into the advanced teachings? You mean for the advanced teachings? Before the advanced uh, teachings. Yes, I would. It's inevitable. At some point there are some, there are some gates which you cannot pass if you haven't done the tapas. So the tapas is compulsory. Good, dear ones. Enough for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining this presentation. And hope to see you one day in the world of Kashmiri Shaivism. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.